paper reports that two of the male prostitutes were given a late night tour of the White House last year. here not entirely deliberate but um glad to be back this is uh that was nick bryant that was that was that wasn't nick bryant that was the opening of his podcast which i've really grown to like um so i wanted to share it i just like the tone and the vibe that he sets at the beginning uh he's probably done somewhere around 10 at this point and he wrote uh what they consider as the quint quintessential book on the franklin cover-up um, he's very well respected in that space. It probably took him 10 years of heavy lifting, I'm just going to guess. Um, but he, as a result, he gets excellent guests. And I don't know for sure if he's done a roadmap of some kind or if this is just the way it's come together. But his podcast series, it has shaped into sort of an arc of of getting to understand that whole world of systematic ritual abuse, essentially and how common it is in our developed world. So I've really, uh, I, I rarely miss them. I'm one, I'm one episode behind. He has uh, Derek Bros on, his most recent one about the Mormons in Utah. Um, so I'm behind on that one. But uh, I just wanted to give him a, a ringing endorsement there. Um, there's actually a website that I've been quite happy with. I guess in some ways it's mainstream in the sense that, like in the margins, they're promoting some of the your typical uh, legacy media type personalities. However, it's completely customizable. So it's called podchaser.com. I think I learned of it through uh, Nick Bryant's podcast, actually. So it's P-O-D-C-H-A-S-E-R.com. And you can set up your own profile. And they said um, in an email that somebody asked the question, What's the IMDB? What's the what's the movie database for podcasts? And that's what got them to create this. And it's it's very friendly, definitely. And I've been very happy with it. Um, and you can do. It feels like it feels like when you rate a podcast, you know, there's not a lot of traffic there yet. So it feels like you're able to give your feedback directly to the uh, to the show. Anyhow, um, so I. They get you to select your top eight podcasts as part of your profile. And those, the ones on my eight list, that's definitely my go-to. So those are the ones I try very hard not to miss. There are a few others, another half a dozen beyond that, that depends on the guests and the topics that I also try not to miss. But um, anyway, I just wanted to lead people there. If you're lucky enough, I mean, it's, it's not good for road trips, of course, 
But if you're lucky enough to be able to uh, listen to a podcast while you're making your morning coffee, that kind of thing, which is what I do. <laughs> and then it also helps you choose which ones you want to upload to your phone for, your, for a road trip. So anyway, I've been very, very happy about all of that. Um, uh, I, I have this interview with Bishop Williamson. This is, this is the center topic of uh, the podcast today. Um, it was maybe, it might have been a month ago now, but um, I knew some of the background, and so they had my full attention when they had it. I don't, I can't remember if I listened to it live, but I had to listen to it twice because it is a bit subtle and nuanced. <laughs> and uh, I woke up the next morning after listening to the first time, and I thought I got the gist of the conversation. Um, but I wanted to clarify, so I sent an email to Dr. Jones, and uh, and I actually was mistaken. So I'll just um, I'll explain that before we before we queue it up. But just as as the time's been going on here, I've been saving most um, relevant links and articles in the podcast page, so it's all here. Um, and and I don't. Uh, I don't need to go through, some of them are self-explanatory, but um, I'll just give you the high points of basically what I was catching as the main themes of the last month and the links that I've shared here. Um, one, the, <laughs> this was kind of a fun aside, and I'm still, I just finishing series, or um, season number two with the Colony series in 2016. I, I, I'm finding I'm getting a lot out of it. Um, it's almost too similar to what's happening, but at the same time, it's entertaining. You know, it's dramatic, and uh, it sort of helps you see everything in a, in a slightly lighter <laughs> view than actually uh, f uh, facing reality all day every day. But um, but it's it's really been entertaining. The one of the lead guys from Lost, I forget the actor's name. Is really good. There's a there's a the marriage. There's a marriage that's central. Um, the wife is involved with the rebels. The father feels it's necessary to get involved with the establishment, and uh, and between the two of them, they they keep the family first and they work together. And it's really quite uh, quite entertaining, uh, at, at least to the end of season two. Um, all cause mortality. I've shared that. That's um, I I mean. If anyone is looking and wanting to pay attention to the results of the corona jabs, it, it's so easy to see that, that they are the actual bioweapon um, just by the data. I mean, insurance companies are sounding alarm bells for, for the claims they're getting already. The data is in. All-cause mortality is probably one of the best data points because deaths from uh, vax injury... They're all over the shop. There's all kinds of different things. But you can see, if you just monitor the trend from the time the vaccinations were launched, um, you can see all-cause mortality spiking and continuing. So I've, I've shared that link. Um, the Anarchists, HBO, I probably don't need to go into that, although it was an absolutely entertaining ride. It, this was a real-life drama, and I know half a dozen of the characters. Um, Involved and it's basically the anarchist movement in Mexico. Um, as I've mentioned many times before, I'm still a big fan of Jeff Berwick and his work with his podcast, and not only that, his company that gives financial advice for the financial meltdown. But it's it's 
for a reality show, it's unbelievably, I think you learn a lot, and it's also a dramatic ride. There's, there's lots of heartbreak in there, but they're real people, and they're, they, by the end, it seems like they all evolved in their own way. They definitely have come, I, I joined, I started to get, not joined, but got involved with that community after the shooting, so the shooting of the uh, series. So by the time I joined them, they're mature and professional, and my experience with them has been outstanding. In general, I think people have good experience with them, but it's just if you if they stopped <laughs> after the f first couple episodes in HBO, you'd think, you know, th these are uh, they have a lot of growing up to do. You might conclude that, but they they all did grow up a lot, and they offered a lot in their businesses and their conferences. I can I can vouch for that. Um, let me just, I'm just looking for a couple of the other highlights on the links on the podcast page. I have bought Michael Jones' new book, The Dangers of Beauty. He's doing, uh, weekly conference calls on his Telegram channel. There's probably a hundred participants every Friday afternoon. Um, it's been great. And one of the sessions he talked about, he went to, um, uh, it was, quintessential American architecture. There were two brothers that tried to capture their own version of American architecture, and I think they invented the bungalow. I think that's what happened, and it was in the maybe in the 1920s, something like that. Well, in the most recent uh, issue of Culture Wars magazine on culturewars.com, Dr. Jones did a deep dive of his experience of spending a weekend with his grandkids and his wife at this unbelievable bungalow in Carmel, California. Well, he is able to um, share how those architects integrated their designs so perfectly with nature and how it just being in that space um, inspires very, very transcendental thinking and transcendental ideas. So um, that most recent article was amazing and his whole experience, he, he wants to... Um, in one of his uh, video chats, he wanted to try and <laughs> add an addendum to his latest book, the, Be the Dangers of Beauty, because of his whole experience there. But he did uh, through his Culture Wars magazine, so it's there. But uh, I haven't got the book yet, but it sounds fascinating, and it's just basically the history of, of aesthetics. I think I think poetry and architecture uh, are all involved, but basically the history and how those how it's evolved and how. Um, Grace is meant to complement nature, and art is meant to complement nature in an integrated way, in, the, in just the way these architects designed their bungalow. So I'm looking forward to that, that book. Um, a few of the other links here. Oh, there was a theme there for maybe two weeks. The, um, the allegory of the cave just came coming up from all over because it just seems like <laughs> that's what we're waking up from, if you will the shadow puppets on the cave wall and it's painful and magnificent all at the same time so anyway I've, there's a couple links along those lines here um, and Matthias Desmet I was extremely I've been impressed with him from the very first time I I, uh, I heard his thesis his interview with Tucker Carlson was over the top it was just I, for somehow you have to give Tucker some credit for letting him talk and asking the right questions but um, to me, he's raising the vibration of the whole way of thinking around the truth and what's happening. And not only that, I think he's got a really good 
answer around uh, you know conspiracy. Like, is there really how much how much is actually calculated and controlled, and how much of it has to just do with um, the frequency that we're at and the and the level of awareness or the lack of level of awareness of the general population. So I think he's just got a really good um, take on all of that, and he and he's written a, a recent article where he took some of his book and used it. Um, he basically was he was criticized that his book um, makes it seem like there was no coordinated ad agenda. And so he's taken some captions from his book to rebut the criticism. And it's, it's really, in my opinion, it's extremely brilliant. The, the marriage between controllers and just psyche of the population. It took me a while, maybe a year, for me to realize most people are doing this to themselves. <laughs> I mean, if, if, you, if you keep going back to the same channel that's been lying to you 24-7 for 8, 10, 12 months, I mean, you're, you're the one that's, that's the problem. Um, and so that's what it, it's kind of nice in that way. It, get, it keeps bringing us back to uh, the only way out is in, you know, is, is basically self-assessment and rising above your own levels of awareness. So I was extremely impressed, and I just saw a little snapshot there that he's on uh, Del Big Tree's show tomorrow, The High Wires. So this will be his second appearance, so I, I'm positive that'll be outstanding. Del probably saw him on Tucker, and and I, and, and will continue to raise the bar there. I'm sure. Um, oh, there was this was I tried really hard. I, that might have been in 2020 to track down Alexander Solzhenitsyn's. Uh, Harvard address. It was in a rainstorm. Everybody had <laughs> umbrellas, and you know, he, I think I think he he was speaking in Russian, and he had a translator, if I recall. Um, but for some reason, I don't know. I'm not sure. My recording wasn't good. I can't remember. But it didn't. the The message didn't stick to me. I knew it was important, but the message didn't stick to me like I would normally think it would. Well, uh, somebody this week shared Dr. Peter Kreeft who did an analysis, who was there that day for that address, and he did an analysis of Alexander Solzhenitsyn's address. And I actually found that it just helped hit home for what, what he was saying and why it was important. And so I've shared that link here. Um, I found it outstanding. There's a trucker documentary, Canadian trucker documentary, that I think... Uh, I haven't seen it yet. I think you have to pay, and which is fine. <laughs> it, it, they, I'm sure uh, Rebel News and they deserve a paywall there, but I just haven't seen it yet. But I, I I watched a lot of their coverage live, and it was outstanding. So I'm looking forward to that. Um, I shared a couple of articles here that are excellent, and and I also uh, shared a sneak peek of the next Michael Jones interview that I'm quite sure I'm going to share which was with a woman named Diana Ploss in, uh, in Boston. Uh, she was a Massachusetts, she is a Massachusetts governor candidate, and their conversation was excellent. And I just, I like sharing it because he, that's a new interview for him. And so when he meets someone new or has a new channel or a new audience, he has to tell the story in a more <laughs> hard-hitting and concise way, and it just keeps getting better and better, in my opinion, each time he has to has to do that. And so it was very, very hard-hitting, the way he summarized the situation and how we've got to this. And so I will take uh, an excerpt of that for the next uh, podcast. 
And finally, the very last one, I shared the IMDb link for Padre Pio, which I watched this week. Um, two parts. It's an Italian film. It's unbelievably well done, as international foreign language films can be, sometimes extremely subtle. But I just thought, I mean, I, I don't, this is all I know of Padre Pio myself so far, but it just captured this beautiful, innocent essence of a monk in the Italian countryside who became who became a phenomenon. So I won't get into it too much because but the reason it got to my awareness was Hollywood is doing a remake with um, Shea LaBeouf from the Transformers fame and shooting the movie has uh, changed him. So he's come out speaking in favor of the Latin Mass because that's the Mass that they were saying back then. And, uh, and so it's kind of interesting, this Hollywood actor who's had his his struggles, um, I assume with substance and depression, and um, and he's found an incredible journey by playing Padre Pio in the in the Hollywood remake. So a friend shared the original Italian film, and I just I loved it. So I can't wait until the Hollywood Hollywood one comes out. <laughs> but I wanted to share that. Now just on this uh, Williamson conversation. So I just want to set it up so that um, so that the significance of it is kind of prepared because it is a bit subtle and nuanced. Essentially, um, what I found so amazing about this conversation, these are two guys, two gentlemen, uh, extremely learned, experienced scholars in many ways, um, who agree where we lost our way. We lost our moral compass. They both agree. They, they agree on like 95% of what they're talking about. <laughs> and... Um, and the only disagreement really is around what should have been done about it. Uh, Michael Jones, his position has been that the, that what should have been done was, even if you see through a lot of the flaws in Vatican II, um, and you could see that there was ambiguities baked into some of the findings and some of the resolutions, um, what should have happened from there is accepted in light of tradition and then work on hammering out the ambiguities to to um, to bring clarity. Uh, but what happened was, in the case of Bishop Williamson, he made a stand. He thought the whole thing. Uh, this, I mean, he thought the whole thing had to be basically torn up and start over. Like that, that there was no value. He couldn't accept any of it because he could see uh, a lot of the games that were being played. And, and the ambiguity that was baked in and that it was going to get, the spin doctors were going to get on top of it and then the, the ambiguities were going to get weaponized against the church and all of that happened. So he's been proven correct. It's just more, Dr. Jones is trying to say that if you had worked within the church to hammer out those ambiguities, we might all be better off, but who knows. But the fact is, they've both been right about... Um, about the that the church lost its way back then, and Bishop or um, Cardinal Ratzinger, who became the Pope, uh, was in a position to sort all that out, and an opportunity was lost. So, so they're basically in total agreement that uh, an opportunity was lost, and the church lost sight of their own moral compass by getting away from the reality and facts of history and focusing too much on positive and modernism, positivity and modernism, and that's how they lost their way. And they're both in agreement, I think, 
that we can't, uh, without sorting that out and getting back on course. I mean, the evidence is here. The church has lost um, their way. The, as a result, the developed nations have lost their way because their moral compass hasn't been there for them. And so the evidence is here that we've, we've dropped the ball in a hundred different ways here. And so what I like about this is two guys that disagree on some fundamentals agree completely on, on the root of the problem and, and just have to point out exactly where that is so that the, the course correction can happen. And so when I woke up that day and I thought I understood the point, I, 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 I did have to listen to it again to, to get all the subtleties. But I had it wrong. <laughs> so I sent an email to Dr. Jones and said um, that the distinction seems to be ahistorical versus historical Thomism, and that the church went away from historical Thomism. And he, he wrote back and said, no, incorrect. You're off base. <laughs> what happened was Cardinal Ratzinger and company, they went with something called Nouvelle Theologie. And I've, I've shared the link to the Wikipedia definition of what that is. But they essentially got away from Thomism because they felt that Thomism wasn't historical enough. That's really what happened. And, but as a result, they sort of had to invent their own theology and got away from what the church had had as their anchor for a very long time, the, the Thomism. And so, um, so they lost their way. Even though they were trying to make it historical, they lost their way because they were trying to be too modernistic and too positive. And, uh, and they didn't have the benefit of all that history of, of Thomism and what it had built. So, um, I, they, you know, the, the, con the concept of divine providence is the concept that there's a gentle hand of, of the creator. It's kind of there as historical events are developing. It's always there. Um, and so when you're thinking about church philosophy like Thomism, you need to consider it in light of divine providence, how we've gotten here. So there's a historical context to that. And in both cases, ahistorical Thomism and Nouvelle Theologie, they got away from, from history and truth and facts and evidence being at the fundamental center. And that's really how the church lost its way and got uh, deceived and off track. And so that's what they talk about. I think it might be 20 minutes. I really wanted to cut it down as much as I could, but I, I couldn't cut any more. So please enjoy that. Um, I do look forward to coming back in, in less than two weeks. There's a whole bunch of reasons that it's gone on for four maybe uh, since my last one. But I hope you enjoy this. I'm glad to share it. And, um, and yeah, the next uh, installment should be before the end of September for sure. All right. Enjoy. Uh, nice to be back in touch. Take care. Dougal, and as painful as it is, Logos is definitely rising. The Marshall Plan well, sent money to Germany, but it became a more subtle form of uh, oppression, and that was the social engineering that I mentioned. One of the main uh, vehicles of social engineering was uh, the sexualization of the culture, specifically the spread of pornography. The Allies brought pornography into Germany during this period of time. And once again, the man of the hour was Cardinal Frings. 
There was a German organization called the Volkswagenbund, uh, equivalent to the American Legion of Decency, which basically fought obscenity from the late 19th century. And Frings joined forces with them, and they went toe-to-toe with the Allied forces who were determined to impose uh, pornography and sexual liberation on the German people as a way of making sure they stayed conquered and docile. Okay, during this period of time, a young man, he's 20 years old, at, and during the hunger yard, 20 years old in 1947, it's Joseph Ratzinger, who becomes uh, the das Wunderkind of the Catholic Church during this time. Everybody thinks he's a brilliant man. In 1959, uh, he's transferred to Bonn, and Bonn is a little bit south of Cologne. And at that point, he meets Cardinal Frings. And Cardinal Frings uh, tells him, uh, there's going to be a council uh, in Rome. I'd like you to come with me. And Ratzinger agreed. And this is uh, the beginning of their relationship. He goes down. He becomes a peritus uh, at Rome. And now we have a collaboration. Now, what does Ratzinger bring to the table? Well, first of all, when he gets to Rome, he's confronted by the preliminary documents, which were written by Cardinal Ottaviani. Uh, in his book, Zeval's biography, he talks about it clearly. Uh, he talks about it in his own memoir. He said that this had to go. This is too negative. It was too reminiscent of the the uh, uh, modern anti-modernist uh, uh, oath of Pius X, of the syllabus of errors, Pius IX. We need a positive approach. We don't want to be uh, burdened by uh, history. Well, at this point, it becomes clear that Ratzinger has been influenced by the social engineering of the German people. He feels guilt, I think, a collective guilt, uh, because uh, that's what the Holocaust is there to do. It's a narrative that is supposed to impose guilt on the German people. So he succeeds in uh, getting rid of the preliminary documents. And then we have the new documents come in. And Gaudium et Spes says that the church has nothing to fear from the modern world. This, uh, what I'm saying here, I'm proposing here, is that at this point, at Vatican II, through Nostra Aetate, for example, uh, the Holocaust narrative was imposed on the Catholic Church. And as a result, the Church was helpless, completely helpless in dealing with moral issues uh, like Hollywood's subversion of the morals in the United States, because it was uh, Jews who ran Hollywood, and Jews were now our friends, and the Church was now saying that uh, the church is opposed to all forms of anti-Semitism. That's in Nostratate with ever, without ever defining uh, what anti-Semitism means. So 1965, 64, uh, the, uh, uh, the, the Swedes get together, Ingmar Bergman and a Jew named Harry Schein get together, and they uh, spring a movie called The Silence, Tisnaden in the uh, Schweigen in German, and break the code basically in Germany. They break, they, they violate all the obscenity laws uh, in Germany. They're a dead letter. And at this point, the Catholic Church in Germany abandons the Volkswagenbund, abandons its own legion of decency. One year later, the same thing happened in the United States of America uh, with a movie called The Pawnbroker, uh, which is a Holocaust movie. The Catholic Church, it's a Holocaust movie. We've just passed Nostratate. I don't know what to do. And so they broke the code in America. At this point, the Jews had free reign to take over the mind of, of Germany and the United States. And that's precisely what happened with catastrophic consequences 
for faith and morals uh, up to this day. Now, the man who should have done something about this was Joseph Ratzinger. Uh, I, uh, Cardinal George told a friend of mine that basically uh, just as John Paul II was brought in uh, as pope to deal with the Polish question, which was the question of communism, Joseph Ratzinger was brought in to deal with the German question, which is basically the Holocaust, guilt, and so on and so forth. Okay, so just as John Paul II gave that famous mass, said mass 1979 in June to one million people and started the ball in Warsaw, started the ball rolling toward the abolition of communism, Ratzinger went to Munich uh, one year after being elected pope and gave a speech on Muslims. Wait a minute, that's not the speech. That's not the burning issue in Germany. There's another group of people that is the burning issue. He didn't do it. And as a result, this came, this meaning the Holocaust, came and back to bite him and it destroyed the papacy. And the our, our uh, other our illustrious guest here, Bishop Williamson, had a crucial role in that regard because of what has come to be known as the uh, whole, uh, the uh, Williamson affair, which is basically uh, Bishop Williamson got lured into a trap in Bavaria uh, by a Swedish film team who, this is what he told me, uh, they had bis bis interviewed him with uh, a lot of insignificant questions. They were packing up, ready to go home, and then the announcer says, oh, by the way, what do you think about the Holocaust? Now, this was a crucial moment because every headline in the world, beginning in Germany, said, Pope allows Holocaust denier into the church. That was the attack. And the church stood there like a deer in the headlights and didn't know what to say. First of all, what is a Holocaust denier? This was a term that was invented by uh, a lady named Debbie Lip Lipstadt in Atlanta uh, in 1993. It is not a category of reality. It's a category of the mind. But because the church could not deal with this because Ratzinger was Pope. He's a German. He had been subjected to that social engineering, all of this baggage uh, that wrecked the papacy of Pope Benedict the 16th. And the wreck of that papacy led to the current situation with Pope Francis. Okay, that's my thesis. I hope this will lead to some type of fruitful discussion. <laughs> well, uh, what frightens, what sort of now frightens me about the Holocaust question, whenever it comes up, nobody, practically nobody, seems to want to go into the question, is it true, is, is what the Holocaust is meant to represent, is it what it's meant to stand for, is what it means, is it true or not, is it historically true or was it not historically true? Nobody goes into that question. And that is what you say is very true. If the church, if the Catholic church refuses to take stand on truth, it's powerless. Truth is the great power of the church. It's its great strength. And if the church says we don't want we, we don't want to know the truth, we aren't interested in the truth. Forget about the truth, the historical truth, the reality truth. Then the church is destroying itself. The church is committing suicide, which corresponds yep. to corresponds to what you say. You, right. you, you're filling in a lot of interesting details, but essentially uh, uh, what you say is true. 
namely the church is is refusing to stand on truth and then the other thing that the other fatal thing of course is that a lot of Catholics come to the point of saying oh they, that's not our fight we're spiritual we're not historic we're not into history we're not into the past we're not into politics we're into spirituality and that's another deadly deadly recipe for the church it's a deadly stand for the church to take the church can't take that stand history is the church's business right the the, the, the reality of what mankind is doing what it thinks it's doing what it means to be doing and what it does in history is very much the church's business it's almighty god's business it's the business of the 10 commandments it's the business of the church and for the church to say we're not interested in politics is deadly right we're not interested in truth we're not interested in politics we're not interested in the truth in politics is fatal for the church but the church was going soft no i I, I I agree. I agree. I, the first time I met Ratzinger was in Philadelphia, and uh, he was Cardinal Ratzinger at that point. And uh, he gave a speech in which the gist of the speech was, "Are you willing to suffer for the truth?" That that was the gist of his speech. Well, I felt like asking him, "Are, are you willing to suffer for the truth?" Because he had a moment. It went at the beginning of his papacy when he went to Munich. It was two million people showed up. A million people, two million people. The thing in Cologne was two million, and so on and so forth. He had a moment. He had the world's attention at that point. And at that point, he should have addressed the Holocaust because that is the fundamental German issue. And his first responsibility is to the German people, just as Pope John Paul II's first responsibility was to the Polish people. Now, if he had said something, if what you're saying, if he had said what you were saying and said, well, it, it, it's this is not true and therefore it has no hold on your conscience, he would have broken the law in Germany at that point. And that would have been the best thing that ever happened to the church, because at that point, at that point, then the German government is thinking, well, do we arrest the pope? That's an interesting kill. Mange le pape, il meurt. The, the man who eats the pope dies. Right. Uh, they, uh, OK, are we going to arrest the pope? OK, or are we just going to let this whole uh, let's be specific. Paragraph uh, 130, I believe, against Volksverhetzung, against racial incitement. So that becomes a dead letter if we don't prosecute the pope. This would have put the German government in a complete dilemma and would have been a win win situation for the church. But he couldn't do it. Because he had, he had internalized the commands of his oppressors. Yes, that's correct. I think that's entirely correct. And he wasn't the only one, obviously. But it's a whole process of liberalism and, and the, the, the softening, the mushing of people's minds. And Hegel had a lot to do with that. So, and, and I think Ratzinger, I forget the name of the theologian, but a, th a theologian whose first time I think was Joseph, the early 19th century in Germany, I think. And the family name may have gone by the D. But there was a, phil a, 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 a theologian, a German theologian of, of that era, a Hegelian, a follower of Hegel, who had a great influence on Ratzinger's thinking. And um, Ratzinger was a Hegelian, basically. Is, in other well, words, that there, there was, there was a, there was a German, a Catholic, uh, what should you say, a Catholic uh, following of the uh, German idealists, more, more following Schelling than, than uh, Hegel, uh, but it was, it was repeated, it was shut down, 
uh, Cloykin just shut it down. The 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 circle around uh, um, Leo the Thirteenth uh, when he was I forget his Italian name, but uh, that they they created uh, Civiltà Cattolica under Pius the Ninth, and that dealt with world the world situation. And uh, when Leo the Thirteenth uh, became uh, Pope, uh, he was a Thomist. And this was the flowering of the neo-Thomist movement. And he passed uh, Eterni Patris, which made uh, uh, Thomism normative in every Catholic university throughout the world, uh, including Notre Dame. Notre Dame adopted this in 1953. It was the great flowering of Thomism uh, in, in, in Europe. Yeah. And uh, Ratzinger wasn't part of it. Ratzinger said in his memoir, I don't like, he didn't like Thomas Aquinas. That's he right. liked he liked Augustine much better, and there was a an anti-Thomist reaction at Vatican II. There's no question about it, and I think that the the main I mean let's be honest here. I think there's a flaw in Thomism, and the fact is it's based on Aristotle, and Aristotle doesn't have history. There's no history here, and you've got a a religion that is based on a his, a historical narrative, Christianity. And so there's a conflict here that had to be resolved. I think it could have been resolved. Uh, but what you had at, at, um, at this moment in places like Notre Dame was a kind of ahistorical Thomism. And all these people, the, the reaction was building and it came out in Vatican II. It was in many ways a repudiation of Thomism. If you repudiate Thomism, you repudiate certainty. And once you do that, then you're, you're on uncharted waters. Yes. Yes, there's there's something I would say there's something in what you say, but I can't agree entirely because um, uh, Aristotle is a historical. Yes, he's abstract. He's thinking abstractly, but he's thinking reality. It's pure, but it's pure common sense. And St. Thomas Aquinas didn't have to change much in Aristotle. And, and it's true. The, the Summa Theologia is also a historical. It's it abstracts from history, but uh, it's the very marrow and, and essence of history. The reality which it analyzes in its abstract way, St. Thomas and Aristotle, is the very essence of the, of the of reality. So I don't think you can blame Aristotle. I don't think you can blame St. Thomas Aquinas. What you can blame is a whole culture which has been going liberal uh, in Europe ever since the French Revolution. The liberalism conquered with liberty, equality, fraternity, uh, and uh, liberalism was undermining the whole of the, steadily undermining the whole of the 19th century. Germanic form, Hegel, especially through Hegel, after Kant. Uh, Pius X names Kant, well, he doesn't name him actually, but he quotes a vital principle of Kant as being the very essence of modernism in his, in his encyclical Pascendi, and that I think is where the, the problem is. It's an abstract problem because Kant is also working in the abstract. It's not, but it, the abstract works out in history, which is why it can seem as though abstract philosophers and theologians are, are ahistorical, but they are, the good ones go to the very essence of reality, whereas the bad ones, like Hegel and Kant, go to some dreamland of. Uh, of contradiction in which, you know, contra co contradiction, things contradictory don't exclude one another. It's a complete uh, undoing of the mind, a mushing of the mind, which results in Vatican II.
yourself. 